1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
0: Hi, my name is Nathan Hobson, and I am a host for the New Books in Food podcast. Today, I'll be talking with uh, Dr. Joshua Friend String about his book, Hungry for Revolution, The Politics of Food and the Making of Modern Chile, out from the University of California Press in 2021. This book explores the modern history and political economy of food in Chile, from World War I, the rise and fall of the allende socialist regime in the 1970s drawing together a diverse cast of characters and weaving together a wide range of sources Friendstring demonstrates that the struggles to create a more just food system shaped modern chile and its expansive social welfare state that is prior to the pinochet coup d'etat and the implementation of the chicago boys economic neoliberalization in addition to the dynamics of class and gender in the consumption politics of chile hungry for revolution is also uh, particularly attentive to the different problematics of feeding the urban working classes and dismantling rural estates and of creating durable socialist regimes and systems of food justice. So Dr. Friendstring, welcome to the podcast and uh, thanks for arranging the time zones so that you could be with us today. Um, As always, I want to start off with the question of um, how you got interested in the project that became Hungry for Revolution.
1: Yeah, thank you so much, Nathan, for inviting me on the program. Um, so this project, uh, the book, Hungry for Revolution, uh, which came out uh, in 2021 with University of California Press, uh, began as my dissertation as a graduate student uh, in the history department at uh, NYU in New York City. And uh, I started my research uh, in Chile, I think in the year 2010 or 2011 And I was uh, interested in connecting two different moments of Chilean history. Um, So the first moment being uh, the government of the popular front, popular fronts really, various coalitions that uh, brought together uh, the Socialist Party, the Communist Party, as well as uh, a whole collection of kind of middle-class reform parties in the 1930s and early 1940s. Uh, These were governments that were the first really to be elected anywhere in the Americas Uh, with the support of the communist party. So they were historic in that sense and mirrored uh, a lot of what was going on in Europe, places like France, as well as Spain, uh, and also changes in the communist internationals uh, platform of a sort of cross-class political strategy to gain state power. The other period that uh, fascinated me as I was kind of uh, embarking on this project was the uh, popular unity revolution uh, of the early 1970s in Chile, uh, led by President Salvador Allende. I entered the archives, not sure which which of these two moments I would uh, sort of focus my attention, but I began to see ways in which these uh, periods were intimately connected to one another. Um, I actually uh, first uh, conducted some archival research in uh, the archives of the Ministry of Economy, Uh, particularly related to a national price control office that gets its start in the 1930s. And the founding decree of that price control office in 1932 uh, becomes the legal justification in the early 1970s for the creation of what Salvador Allende would call the uh, social uh, property area of the economy. This was essentially the socialist aspect of the economy, nationalized industries uh, that produced for the benefit of uh, of the nation, for the common good. That price control office uh, had as its focus uh, the uh, regulation of basic foodstuffs, everything from milk to bread to meat, eventually expanding into dozens, even hundreds of different uh, products not exclusively food, but I would say certainly in its majority uh, connected to food. So I began to see uh, food history as this really interesting way of connecting these two periods in Chilean history uh, and really uh, building what had long been kind of uh, uh, an interest uh, of mine in understanding uh, the formation of, of different reform and revolutionary movements in the 20th century. Digging deeper, uh, we can see the ways in which you know different social movements, particularly on the left, uh, the labor movement, communist party, socialist party, uh, began to organize third, in the 30s and 40s around uh, this idea of food, uh, basic consumption as a social and economic right. Uh, I took that forward as I think we'll talk about uh, in the interview thinking about agrarian reform and its relationship to food uh, and then ultimately thinking about the way in which the revolution itself from 1970 to 1973 tried to enshrine food as a basic right of citizenship and something ultimately that the state uh, needed to guarantee for all of its citizens. Yeah, thank you. Um, and that
0: really nicely previews some of the things that I do want to talk about in the interview. Um, and at the risk of uh, reprising some of what you've just said, um, I mean, to me, you know, reading the book, it seems that um, one of the really important things you're doing is uh, locating your research within the historical literature um, on the centrality of consumption um, and how that is sort of fit into the uh, practice of popular politics. Um, And you're centering food, as you said, as this social, political, and economic issue um, around the sort of rise and fall of the popular unity coalition in Chile. Um, And thinking about the ways that hunger and the desire for food security, the struggle to create and manage just or more just food systems are moving mass politics um, and creating a more expansive social welfare state. Uh, And this was interesting to me, you know, you're you're identifying this this effort to quote, make basic consumption a fundamental social and economic right and the foundation of a more socially inclusive economic democracy. And I thought this was, what was sort of interesting about this was that you look at this as a two-pronged process of on the one hand, um, dismantling rural power structures and on the other providing access to food in urban areas that's more equitable. And so this was sort of what was interesting to me is that you're taking this sort of dual approach of sort of looking at urban and rural um, in addition to this really interesting cast of characters um, and a lot of, uh, really complicated threads that you're weaving together in the story. Um, but before we get into that, uh, when we get into part one in a moment, I wanted to ask, I mean, this is a book that's deeply embedded in the particular context of Chile, but it's also likely to be read by an audience, including people like me who don't know much about Chile um, and particularly about its modern history. So I wonder if you could um, sketch sketch out a, a kind of an overview of the timeline of the book and the context in which it's taking place. Um, and also, uh, if you could explain a little bit about this, this distinction that you're making between consumerism on the one hand, and consumption politics on the other, I think that would really help the audience to understand the framing of the book.
1: Yeah, certainly, I really appreciate um, all of those comments and observations. As I uh, sort of alluded to, um, this is a a history that covers several decades, Um, typically histories of the popular unity revolution, begin somewhere in the 1960s, maybe uh, stretching back a bit into the 1950s, particularly uh, more sort of political histories of the formation of that uh, coalition and in, in its eventual election. I begin the story uh, several decades before, actually in the early uh, years of the 20th century. Uh, I look at how uh, Chile's role is sort of very interesting uh, role that they played in the global economy at the turn of the 20th century as an exporter of nitrate fertilizers, fertilizers that were being used in Europe, the United States, and elsewhere to really fuel uh, what some historians have called the sort of first green revolution, uh, uh, intensive uh, agricultural practices that brought uh, nutritional abundance to uh, parts of the global north, Chile was central in that history, Chilean workers processing uh, those uh, fertilizers that would eventually get sent out of Chile. And uh, I show the ways in which uh, that early labor movement, those early workers movements began to really understand inequality in Chile uh, in relationship to their role as providers of nutritional sustenance to these faraway places. They began to look around at their local conditions and see uh, incredibly high food prices for their own basic essentials, Uh, scarcity for essential goods, Uh, the fact that in in many of these mining communities, they were being forced to buy from the company store using company script, not making uh, a, a sort of real wage that would travel with them as they became uh, displaced or unemployed uh, in these different nitrate mines. So I look at the way in which really inequality uh, organizes itself from the beginning of the 20th century around around food and consumer uh, inequity. I continue that story through uh, the sort of post-World War I period uh, in which workers uh, mobilize uh, on the streets of places like Santiago, uh, many of them workers who had been again, displaced from the nitrate mines to the cities uh, after a big uh, sort of economic bust uh, during and immediately after World War I. And they form an organization, a fascinating organization that we could talk a bit more about called the National Workers Assembly for Nutrition, a sort of cross-class organization that demands things like price controls, uh, export restrictions on uh, foodstuffs that are produced in Chile, Uh, Also, uh, special uh, uh, attempts to import things like uh, meat without tariff restrictions from neighboring Argentina, the establishment of uh, sort of open-air markets where uh, food producers could directly sell to consumers and cut out uh, the uh, sort of profiteering of middlemen. All of these sorts of things take center stage uh, and I argue pave the way Uh, eventually for the creation of the Popular Front in the 1930s. From there, uh, I look at uh, this period in the 30s and 40s that historians have identified as the kind of uh, formative years of the Chilean social welfare state or developmentalist state. And I look at how uh, nutrition issues shape understandings of social welfare, um, the role played by scientists and doctors, Uh, who are are enamored by this idea of nutrition science in those years and the uh, idea that uh, providing, uh, you know, not only calories, but access to particular vitamins would restore the vitality of the Chilean working class. In the uh, late 1950s, early 1960s, Chile embarks on a major uh, process of agrarian reform, redistributing agrarian lands to uh, landless uh, workers, landless peasants, Uh, and I argue that one of the fundamental goals of that project from the perspective of the state is to increase domestic production, uh, making uh, food cheaper for urban consumers, and also making Chile less dependent on foreign food imports uh, to maintain its uh, nutritional standards. As I've already said, uh, the period, or excuse me, the history ends with the period of the popular unity revolution from 1970 to 1973. And in three chapters, uh, I look at both the rise and the fall of that project through the lens of food. Uh, There's this early moment of tremendous consumer abundance, the government establishing uh, policies related to, say, childhood milk distribution, uh, sort of major public health uh, initiative of the Allende government, uh, and then, gradually uh, the emergence or the reemergence of scarcity, uh, the return of hyperinflation. And I consider the ways in which the opposition uh, rallies itself around uh, those issues to uh, eventually topple the Allende government and set up a very different social and economic model in the post-1973 period. To get to your other uh, uh, question about the sort of distinction between consumerism and consumption politics, Much of the book uh, explains the kind of transition from what I call uh, consumption politics to this sort of neoliberal consumerism uh, after the Allende period under the dictatorship of Augusto Pinochet. Consumption politics, uh, I think of as an idea that's rooted in ideas of moral economy. And uh, I consider the ways in which uh, workers, popular classes, organize themselves as consumers, uh, but particularly as political agents, use consumption as a way to kind of politicize their working class identities and really make demands upon the state for guaranteed access to essential goods. Um, So I associate sort of this understanding of mass politics in the mid-20th century as uh, being concerned with a basic right to consumption. Consumerism Uh, I think more of in the book as a sort of narrow individual concern uh, with the sort of subjective allure of conspicuous conspicuous forms of consumption. This is a sort of market-based idea uh, in which uh, one's action or participation in the marketplace becomes uh, synonymous with or sometimes a substitute for political or economic citizenship. Uh, and uh, this ultimately becomes a sort of hallmark feature of Chilean neoliberalism. Many scholars have looked at that, uh, but drawing those connections between uh, what existed, a sort of progressive vision of consumption politics and a more conservative, narrow vision of consumerism uh, is a major uh, objective of the book, historicizing that process.
0: yeah, thank you for uh, providing us a real uh, nice, broad overview of the the whole sort of narrative. Um, I want to uh, dig down a little bit deeper into uh, some of the parts of the book. Um, It's divided into three sections, right? So there's part one, which is a hungry nation, part two, containing hunger, and part three, recipes for change. Um, And the first section, I think you've you've covered a lot of uh, what readers, uh, eventual readers will need to know. Um, And I guess I would add that it seemed to me the, um, the, particular importance of the women's movement in the interwar years. Also, the uh, Chilean Communist Party plays a big part in uh, that first section of the narrative. I want to start by drilling down a little bit into part two, uh, which is comprised of two chapters. Uh, So this is part two containing hunger. Uh, Chapter three is controlling for nutrition, and you've already referenced this. Um, I wanted to take a look at the chapter in in, in a different way, though, than you mentioned, which is that it's a really interesting example of the really diverse set of characters who populate the book. Um, you're looking at, as you put it quote, a broadcast of physicians, social scientists, and physical scientists who are, laying the foundations for the Chilean welfare state in the 30s and 40s. Um, and, and I thought this was, I should say also, this is something I'm, I'm interested in myself in my own research as a sort of similar uh, period and project in Japan. Um, and you're putting data collection and analysis at the core of this project of creating the welfare state and of thinking about um, nutrition as and food as a foundation. Um, and I, I'd like to know why that's the sort of uh, grounding of your narrative, um, and what kinds of data are they uh, are they collecting and how um, and what kind of ideologies and systems are then built upon that data that become the foundation of this new sort of vision of the state?
1: Yeah, one of the remarkable things that I found, uh, and I think others who've studied this period in other parts of Latin America and perhaps other parts of the world have found similar things, is just uh, how limited. The early welfare state, the early developmental states, uh, understanding of living conditions of sort of the things we associate with uh, the standard of living, how limited their view was at this period because they lacked fundamental sort of empirical data about how people were living. Uh, You know, so not directly related to food. You know, you see the collection of you know economic data related to wages. Uh, also connected to prices of a whole host of goods. The the people that I'm focused on uh, in the book eventually come to be uh, important state officials in the 40s, late 30s, uh, early 1940s, but beginning a decade or two before, uh, are working in sort of more academic positions uh, and they're carrying out surveys of people's uh, uh, consumption habits. Uh, I focus on a particular guy, uh, Eduardo Cruz Coque, who eventually becomes Minister of Health in the mid 1930s, who's one of uh, Chile's sort of foremost uh, scientists uh, in the uh, 1920s and 1930s. He carries out some of the first, uh, you know, what we probably consider now quite rudimentary surveys of, of working class consumption habits. He's uh, greatly influenced by, uh, as I said already, sort of nutrition science, the idea that uh, we need to identify uh, first, what percentage of the the diet is composed of protein, of uh, particular types of vitamins, uh, and then make prescriptive uh, recommendations about how to uh, improve the diet, right? Uh, a lot of this was uh, based in understandings of, of, of um, you know, working class culture, that there was a sort of deficiency and there, there needed to be a sort of civilizing um, uh, improvement uh, to uh, create a more productive uh, working class. There's an international component to this story as well. Uh, the International Labor Office, the League of Nations, uh, later uh, organizations that would be affiliated with the United Nations after the Second World War uh, assist with a lot of this data collection. Uh, so there's uh, French and Italian nutrition scientists that come in the 1930s and carry out uh, a sort of an extension of the work that Cruz Coquet and his associates did a few years earlier, and they conduct in I think it's 1935 1936 uh, sort of the first Uh, large-scale national nutrition survey that goes around to various uh, representative areas of the country uh, and looks at uh, consumption habits, writes it up in a large report, and this becomes foundational for the creation uh, of what becomes known as the National uh, Nutrition Council uh, in the mid-1930s. So there's this interesting uh, relationship between the actual foundation of state institutions and uh, the collection of this data in the immediate year, years before. This is not simply uh, a sort of academic process, but it's very much an applied uh, social science, or in some cases actually an applied uh, you know, sort of hard science project. What I uh, you know kind of come to, to argue out of all of this uh, is that ideas of hunger on the one hand and ideas of sort of proper nutrition or even abundance on the other, Uh, are uh, highly mediated or even constructed notions, right? Uh, There's not a sort of objective notion of what hunger means in any particular moment, even though uh, political figures and some of these uh, sort of state officials are constantly referencing this as a problem. uh, Hunger in the early 20th century certainly looks very different than it does say in the 1970s. This, this process of collecting information though, uh, of calculating nutrition and calculating malnutrition uh, uh, offers itself as a, a sort of uh, way that uh, social movements can then kind of politicize the, uh, the topic of food distribution and can make demands on the state to go further and further to ensuring an even wider range of uh, what they would call sort of subsistence goods or you know, coming to a sort of wider definition of what constituted uh, a a sort of essential staple in the Chilean diet. Yeah, and as I said, I mean, this is something I'm interested in
0: in my own work, and I was particularly sort of reminded of, um, first of all, one of the Japanese scientists who worked with the League of Nations, the Japanese were very involved in these kinds of projects, and it was a big sort of showcase for Japanese science and nation building around the world. And they, you know, they were into the prestige politics of, oh, we get to tell Chile how to, you know, how to eat and how to do their nutrition, right? So this, I I know there's a a reference to this gentleman that I'm interested in, in in your work. And I found that very interesting to see these sort of connections um, and how they were being made uh, around the world at the time. I was also reminded of, you know, um, another work that you cite like Dana Simmons, idea, Vital Minimum, and these works about the sort of quantification of both minimum and optimal diets and sort of how you as a state construct the questions of hunger and nutrition is it about minimums is it about optimums optimum for what minimum for what you know uh, and so this was a chapter that i think uh, i wanted to take us a, a little bit of a deeper dive right because it's so foundational and thinking about what food really means as a state and i thought you did a nice job of um bringing that out um and That's sort of uh, the the, the theme of chapter three. And then in chapter four, um, instead of thinking about these sort of quantifying nutritional needs, building systems of equitable food access, Um, you turn toward this other prong of reform, which is uh, the drive to change the estate system in the countryside rather than sort of thinking about the urban poor and and working class. Um, So the estate system, as you describe it, was a major problem for food reformers because, uh, and I'm quoting here, the richest soil was primarily in the hands of large landowners. And that limited the effectiveness of reforms, uh, which were focused on um, changing agricultural production. So tell us like, what, what is the estate system in this particular context and what kind of reforms were attempted and implemented um, during these mid-century years?
1: Yeah, so uh, fantastic questions. And again, I, I like, uh, you know, thinking about chapter three and chapter four uh, together. And, uh, you know, just to, to add on one thing to, to what you've already said, you know, both of these chapters, I argue, if you kind of take a, a bird's eye view of what's going on from, say, the 1930s to the 1960s, Uh, I argue that they're, you know, the state is trying to contain the sort of consumer unrest that they saw early in the 20th century. So thinking about the creation of this nutrition council of the social welfare state more broadly of agrarian reform, I think it's interesting to think of these as uh, ways of channeling or containing popular unrest and popular protest. I think a bit different than how uh, some historians have uh, have talked about agrarian reform. Um, it's often seen as a sort of uh, liberatory process being led uh, from below by uh, landless workers, and certainly that is the case. I don't always think that's how state officials were thinking about it, or why there uh, comes to be such a uh, sort of tremendous national consensus. From the center, even elements of the center right all the way to the left in the 1960s, uh, supporting uh, variations of the same idea of agrarian reform. As you said, you know, this is based uh, in dismantling the old uh, estate, agrarian estate system that uh, goes back, uh, you know, perhaps as far as the kind of colonial period in Chile, but certainly uh, in the 19th century. Uh, landowners uh, gobbling up huge amounts of land, uh, those same landowners often becoming elected to uh, the legislature, to national congress. Um, there's a, a sort of traditional story that's told uh, by uh, scholars working in the early and mid 20th century that these landowners were constantly trying to um, uh, debase. Uh, the national currency to sort of provoke inflation so that they could, uh, you know, have a a sort of more uh, beneficial economic position. Their loans, their mortgages uh, would be uh, uh, worth less, and they would be uh, ultimately uh, beneficiaries uh, of the uh, the sort of debased, devalued currency. There was also the the theory that these uh, landowners were intentionally not producing on the lands that they owned in order to keep the prices of what goods they did produce uh, elevated. They were exporting these goods almost exclusively things like wheat, uh, especially in the 19th century, uh, and uh, not sending them to domestic markets because they could get much more uh, in, in foreign markets. So there becomes uh, already by the 1920s, 1930s, this image of this sort of villainous landowner uh, as uh, one North American historian would uh, right about in the 60s or 70s. Uh, and uh, that villainous landowner was uh, fundamentally an underproducing uh, sort of anti-national figure, right? These were Chileans, these were not necessarily foreign landowners, but they didn't have the national interest uh, uh, in mind as they were making their sort of economic calculations. In the post-war period, there's a couple of things that uh, happen that make uh, this problem so uh, important for reformers. The first is that Chile becomes uh, a net food importer, right? So uh, there's this major uh, uh, shift that's happening uh, in this period, largely provoked by urbanization, right? The uh, emergence of a very large urban working class and also middle class. Uh, who have, you know, tremendous uh, consumer needs, and so Chile is forced to go abroad to purchase foods that it otherwise might have been able to produce for a much smaller urban population before this. The other major issue, uh, this is kind of persistent throughout the 20th century, but really takes off uh, in the 40s and 50s, is inflation. Price inflation, and particularly food price inflation, this becomes Uh, among all the sort of consumer goods, the good that stands out in terms of its uh, rapid price increases uh, from the 1940s forward. Economists begin to understand in Chile in the 50s and 60s that inflation is deeply tied to the lack of domestic supply, uh, domestic supply of foodstuffs in particular. And so economists begin to go after uh, the underproducing agricultural estate uh, in order to uh, not only resolve uh, the problem of food dependence, but also to bring down inflation across the Chilean economy. So these are all kind of uh, things that precipitate this turn towards agrarian reform to breaking up uh, the large estate. Uh, there's also an assumption kind of baked into all of this that uh, smaller land holdings uh, with uh, a sort of wider range of landowners. Will necessarily lead to increased production in certain moments, I think that holds true, although that uh, assumption becomes challenged at different moments. Uh, And certainly the major issue of agrarian reform uh, is that uh, the speed at which it needed to occur uh, meant there would be uh, sort of rapid disruptions in the short term to what was able to be produced, so there would be some uh, sacrifice that people would have to uh, endure. In order to eventually get, uh, you know, several years down the road to a more productive agricultural sector.
0: Yeah, um, I think many of our listeners will uh, have lots of thoughts about uh, uh, global supply chains disruptions, imports, exports, and most of all inflation. Uh, this is, you know, one of several places where uh, you have the unfortunate problem of your research becoming. Uh, Pain, painfully relevant, <laughs> uh, probably since the time that you uh, uh, started on it. Um, and I want to get back to that when we get to uh, particularly chapters six and seven. Uh, before doing that, though, uh, and those are both parts of uh, part three, um, I want to talk about chapter five. So part three is Recipes for Change, um, and here we get to the sort of Ienda years, and those are peri ienda years, I guess, um, that are the the I guess the climax, the culmination of the, the narrative that you're putting out here. Um, and chapter five has this very striking title, When Revolution Tasted Like Empanadas and Red Wine. Um, what, what does the title mean? Um, and how is it related to Allende's rise to the presidency um, and his government's vision of socialist developmentalism, um, which is different from his predecessors and how is it different?
1: Fantastic questions. Um, so Salvador Allende, Uh, is another one of these figures that makes so directly the tie between the 1930s, the popular front period and the 1970s. Obviously, the president, the leader of the the popular unity revolution in the early 1970s, he gets his start as uh, one of the first ministers of health uh, appointed in, I think, in 1939 under the first popular front government. Uh, someone who uh, was trained largely as a pediatrician and became very interested in, in issues of uh, uh, childhood food consumption, particularly milk. Uh, and some of his his earliest work, actually as a as a, a practitioner and scholar of that of that issue, he's a well known uh, sort of political commodity. By the time he's elected, he had ran multiple times for president, lost uh, I think three times before he's elected. Uh, on his fourth try in 1970. He, uh, in the 1970 election, uh, begins to use this term uh, intermittently uh, that his government would oversee this, as you said, revolution that that tastes like empanadas and and red wine. I see this as meaning two things, uh, and there's been some some other scholars who have looked at this as well. Um, On the one hand, uh, empanadas and red wine being quite clearly two food items uh, associated with the kind of culinary imaginary of of Chile, empanadas being a a sort of meat hand pie and red wine, uh, a sort of more luxury good, uh, but certainly uh, Chile, um, even though at this point it's not quite a a major wine exporter, uh, certainly it had a lot of uh, uh, wine growers, a lot of vineyards um, that were were prominent in the kind of national understanding of, of, of Chile's agricultural sector. So uh, the kind of most basic answer is, you know, this has to do with consumption, right? That uh, the the revolution would provide some of these basic culinary items to all Chileans. They would no longer be uh, exclusively for the well-off, exclusively for the rich, uh, but wine and empanadas would be uh, available to all. The second way of interpreting what that meant, I think, uh, has to do with a sort of larger global context. Um, Again, these are Chilean, Uh, food items. Certainly there are other places of the world that that consume both. But this was a sort of gesture towards uh, Cuba into the Soviet Union uh, in a way to distinguish what was happening in Chile from some of these other places. So this was to be a socialist revolution, but it was also to be uh, a national revolution. And it was to be distinct from uh, what uh, particularly conservatives uh, were fearful of. And that was that, that Chile was going, Chile was going down the path uh, uh, of Cuba or, or some other socialist countries. So, uh, you know, this is uh, again a way of kind of rooting the Chilean experience in this longer history that the Popular Unity uh, Project was not simply an outgrowth of the Cold War, but had its origins in this long standing uh, struggle for nutrition and long standing struggle uh, over, over food. Uh, Allende is, uh, is elected. Uh, in 1970 and uh, some of his uh, immediate initiatives and immediate programs uh, begin to put into action uh, that that slogan in different ways Uh, not directly I would say connected to empanadas and red wine but you think see things like milk uh, becoming a a centerpiece uh, immediately rolls out a childhood milk Uh, distribution program that I think even critics of the government would admit today was one of the most successful social policies uh, of the revolution. Uh, You know, huge increases in childhood milk consumption, uh, you know, improved uh, health outcomes that are often associated with that uh, increase. You see, uh, you know, the government beginning to fix prices for basic goods and enforce those price controls for things like bread, uh, meat to a certain extent, although this becomes a bit trickier. Uh, you see new sources of protein uh, being uh, developed and promoted by the government, fish consumption, which tended to, to largely be a luxury uh, good in Chile, you know, maybe consumed around the holidays, uh, but not something that there was wide popular consumption of. Uh, becomes uh, very much a part of the uh, kind of popular culinary uh, palate, you might say uh, under the under the Allende government. Some of that was provoked be- uh, by the fact that there were shortages for for things like beef, the more kind of uh, consumer staple. Uh, but nonetheless, I think uh, this issue of food creates uh, an image of of tremendous abundance, in the uh, revolution's first year.
0: Yeah, I mean, I was thinking, you know, milk and honey throughout the whole chapter, right? You know, the, the sort of, uh, and it, I guess this is the, um milk and honey in the local dialect, right, in a sense. And I thought that was also interesting that, you know, as you said, it's, it's a Chilean socialist revolution, right, and it's very much about being grounded in Chilean history and society, um, as well as being part of this sort of, you know, larger international movement. Um, And it was was sort of interesting um, to see the negotiation uh, of those Um, Two push and pull factors uh, for me. Um, So I want to move on to uh, chapter six, which is a battle for the Chilean stomach. Um, And I won't torture our audience with my poor pronunciation of the price control boards, uh, supply and price control boards, which are at the center of the chapter. Uh, The uh, acronym is JAP. Uh, and so these are the um, central sort of lo- locuses of political and social contestation over food um, during the second year of the ended presidency. Um, and the, the, they're attacked from both sides. And I thought this was really interesting, right? So you have conservative opponents of the government on the one side who are upset about its socialism. Um, and on the other hand, you have the radical socialists who are upset that it's moderate, it's incremental. Um, and so what were what were these boards doing? And why did everybody hate them? It seems right. Uh, like, on on the sort of fringes here. Um, And why did they become the targets of grassroots uh, collective action? Um, And what were the effects of that? And actually, I I, I have to take a sort of editorial moment here to say that, you know, there's the, truckers strike in October 1972, um, and, and another truckers strike that you cover in the final chapter. Um, these were really pivotal moments for the history of, I think, food politics and politics in general in Chile, as as you're laying it out in the book. So obviously, again, trucker strikes are something we're all thinking about these days. Um, so this is a really interesting sort of moment um, in Chilean history. But I wonder, you know, sort of what what we can learn from it at some, at some level. Um, and then specifically within the context of the book, um, why is it truckers that are doing the striking? And I don't know if this is a little bit too speculative, so feel free to ignore the question, but is this um, sort of a, you know, it's collective action, right? It's, it's organized labor action being sort of co-opted by this um, uh, subsection of the working class for an anti-socialist in some ways sort of anti-working class um, and and I wonder what that says about the uh, about those tactics themselves, right? That they can be sort of used in that particular way. Uh, again, I'm just kind of asking you to spitball here, uh, and feel free to ignore that part of the question if you'd like.
1: Thank you uh, very much, Nathan, for for all of those questions, observations. Uh, the, so this chapter, uh, this focus on, uh, as you said, uh, price and control uh, boards, the uh, Juntas de Abastecimiento y Precios. Is really uh, a chapter about distribution, right? The importance of uh, food and consumer distribution. I think this is a kind of understudied area when we think about kind of the political economy of uh, political economy of socialism in general, or the political economy of this particular case in Chile. You know, we think about consumption and production, and we miss this important chain in the middle, which is the supply chain and is is distribution. This, uh, you know, the the creation of these boards, these essentially, you know, their neighborhood uh, consumer committees that have um, two distinct functions. Uh, One is to uh, serve as sort of uh, voluntary uh, ad hoc uh, uh, officials of the state, unofficial officials of the state, right, carrying out price inspections, going around to different Uh, you know, markets to different stores and seeing if uh, merchants are abiding by price ceilings, if they're engaging in hoarding, and then, you know, reporting that directly to the state. So they're sort of the eyes of the state, the citizen eyes of the state. They're not getting paid to do this, but these are committed uh, sort of political uh, supporters of the Allende government. That was something that had happened in Chile uh, for many, many years. Uh, I mentioned at the beginning of the program, 1932, the creation of this uh, price control office had this uh, incredible name called the, the commissariato. Uh, uh, its officials were called commissars and they would be, you know, price inspectors. And uh, part of that law allowed for citizens to carry out these sort of vigilance or, or monitoring activities. Uh, you could band together and and do essentially what happens in the 1970s. This was used at different moments, particularly in the mid-1940s, this occurs. Uh, So in many ways, the popular unity government in creating these price boards is going back to an older precedent that had, you know, would have been quite familiar uh, to Chileans uh, in the 1970s. The thing that becomes A bit uh, more expansive or a a bit uh, new to this period is that these boards also become distribution sites. So they become the places through which, for example, uh, new produce, uh, new production in the agricultural sector, particularly the, the sector of the agricultural economy that was going through the process of agrarian reform would directly distribute to uh, working class sort of peripheral communities around major cities. Uh, So they were a way essentially of cutting out the sort of private distribution syndicates uh, who the middlemen who had been uh, seen as the sort of enemy of the people for many, many decades. So there's a sort of attempt to create a new supply chain. When historians tend to write about the hop, the juntas de abastecimiento y precios, Uh, they're often presented as a sort of emergency stopgap measure, uh, a way to deal with moments of scarcity. I think that they actually were envisioned as something more, uh, and they were envisioned as kind of the uh, beginnings of this new form of direct distribution. I think they're essential to thinking about uh, what uh, socialism meant for many uh, supporters of the popular unity government, as well as uh, many of its sort of economic Uh, ideologues or intellectuals. So uh, yes, as you said, these become very contested uh, uh, institutions or organizations. Uh, They were deeply affiliated, at least at the start, with the Chilean Communist Party. The communists were the kind of leaders at the beginning. Anyone who uh, studied a bit of Chilean history in this period uh, knows that the Communist Party was actually the more conservative wing of, of Allende's coalition and many on his uh, sort of radical left, people who were part of the coalition, as well as those who never even joined were uh, further to the left, uh, the revolutionary left movement, or MIR uh, in particular, become critics uh, of these uh, 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 price and supply committees and suggest they aren't going far enough to empower consumers, uh, that they're always kind of you know state officials who are put as figureheads uh, and they uh, are, are, are actually, uh, um, in a certain way, a, a kind of reactionary uh, institution. So that battle kind of plays itself out. Uh, the mere the revolutionary left movement, some other movements start to create their own uh, versions of the uh, price and control committees, uh, and uh, it really becomes a, a sort of battle over uh, what participation, economic participation, will look like in the revolution. How much Uh, how much power consumers themselves will have as opposed to the state. This all comes to a head in October of 1972 during this major uh, truckers strike that you alluded to, often known as the October strike. Uh, Truckers, again, a key component of the old uh, supply chain, the private supply chain, are fearful. uh, and There was some uh, reason uh, that they were fearful Uh, that the Allende government was going to nationalize the trucking industry. I do think it's important to uh, perhaps not glorify these truckers as sort of working class heroes. Uh, Many of them uh, were actually uh, probably closer to uh, to the side of capital than they were to labor in the sense that they owned uh, their own trucks. They were private business people. Uh, the truckers themselves uh, uh, you know there's a whole sort of uh, arrangement uh, through which they they themselves uh, were part of the business community as opposed to simply working for a, uh, a, a, a boss um, and so many of the leaders of this movement are also uh, the strike movement are also key leaders within uh, the various business associations the chamber of commerce uh, you know similar similar types of of organizations. It's also, I think, important to add uh, that the sort of organization and planning of this, though it occurred with uh, Chileans, was um, financed in large part by the United States. Uh, Documents uh, come out later as part of the church committee in the United States in the mid 1970s would make this very clear. Um, So it was, you know, perhaps there was a sub sector of the working class that supported this, but this was seen very much as a capital strike, right? As a a strike, a sort of counter-revolutionary movement. Uh, And uh, again, just to highlight the fact, you know, uh, these were people who were upset uh, often because their livelihoods depended upon it, uh, that the uh, supply chain, the forms of distribution in Chile were uh, going in a very different direction than they had for many years. That moment, that October strike, uh, which is essentially a month-long shutdown of private distribution across the country, truckers turning off the engines of their trucks along the sides of major roads and highways, uh, you know, uh, provokes scarcity, provokes shortages, leads to hyperinflation as well. Uh, and at the same time, it also leads to uh, the HOP, the Juntas de Abastecimiento y Precios, playing a much more uh, sort of vital role in getting distribution going again after October of 1972. Yeah, thank you, and
0: um, th- that's, I-, I think this this point that the uh, truckers are not labor as such is, is I think one of the most interesting sort of things that um, when I started in on the chapter, I didn't see that angle coming in that sense. It was really sort of revelatory for me to think about uh, the different ways that, um, as you say, sort of you know business owners and capital um, are, uh, aligned at, at various times. Um, so in this final chapter, um, and and to some extent the epilogue as well, um, you're looking at the fall of the Allende government and its aftermath. So chapter seven is Barren Plots and Empty Pots, and the epilogue is Counter-Revolution at the Market. And I wanna sort of lump them together here to think about this uh, fall and aftermath. So first, the, the fall. Um, you're right it, it, that there are sort of three diverse Uh, previously unallied groups who unite in opposing socialist food production, distribution, and consumption. Um, So you have the agriculturalists uh, who are anti-redistribution, the shopkeepers who are anti-regulation, and conservative women um, who are opposed to the government intrusions into the sacrosanct space of their kitchens. Um, And in the in the chapters uh, here at the end of the book you're arguing that this opposition quote opened space intentionally or otherwise for a small but well-connected cohort of conservative economists to wield new influence um, and that this along with a second, Uh, trucker strike, which ends up being quite debilitating, um, is a major factor leading to the overthrow of the government. Um, In other words, the uh, military coup uh, by Augusto Pinochet, um, and the subsequent neoliberalization of the Chilean economy. So what does this mean for Chile, um, and for the region more broadly? And in particular, uh, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about the um, consequences for the possibilities of a mass politics built around food justice issues um, in South America and beyond. Um, Because I think this, you know, you're you're sort of looking at this um, essentially failed attempt to do so um, and the way it dissolves into, you know, one of this enormously repressive um, government and uh, entirely. Uh, uh, opposed sort of neoliberal economic system.
1: I, I really love the way that you uh, described uh, the chapter and particularly the kind of ideologies that come together here. Um, I think you do it even uh, better than I do in the book, uh, you know, the anti-redistribution, anti-regulation, and then this sort of uh, turning inwards and, you know, getting politics out of the domestic uh, household. I think that's I- exactly what what happens. The, you know, this is a, kind of curious uh, group of you know, strange bedfellows that come together in opposing the government. Uh, women, uh, particularly when they're asserting their kind of identities as consumers or protectors of the household economy throughout the 20th century are not making the types of claims that they make in the early 1970s. You know, If you look back, talk about the 1930s, the sort of progressive women's movement, uh, it's all about more state, right? It's about state regulation. It's about you know the state protecting uh, you know childhood nutrition, protecting uh, uh, mothers' abilities to or mothers and wives' abilities to go to the market and receive a fair price on uh, you know whatever uh, good they're they're purchasing there. The politics in the 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 nineteen seventies during the. Uh, uh, popular unity revolution becomes uh, much more reactionary. There certainly is a segment of the women's movement that does not fall into this category. Women were also protagonists of the the price and supply boards. Uh, But there is, I think, a shift, a general shift, certainly among middle-class women and and, and definitely upper-class women, that they're moving more into these uh, sort of uh, anti-statist, anti-interventionist positions. You know, we, uh, I think, there hasn't been much explanation to date. Partly, it's because it's relatively recent uh, history about why this coales- coalescence happens, and why then uh, you know the sort of neoliberal uh, ideology that the so-called Chicago Boys, these you know, groups of conservative economists that come and become key advisors for the Pinochet dictatorship, uh, you know where that support comes from. Um, I do think it's really important to understand that there was some support, right? That this this wasn't, uh, even though clearly there was a dictatorship, there was a popular uh, base of support, perhaps not popular, but a base of support uh, for the types of policies that Pinochet uh, and the Chicago boys would implement. And a lot of that has to do with the experience of the early 1970s. Um, the, uh, the coup itself in 1973 uh, sets in motion, really the destruction, not only of what Allende had tried to build over three years, but I argue it sets in motion the destruction of everything going back to the 1920s or 1930s. And this is, a, I think, a really important point to understand and it gets to the importance of viewing this all in kind of this long durée, five or six decade process. Um, Allende was you know, coming to power and implementing policies that had this much longer trajectory. And uh, the destructive uh, nature of the, the Pinochet regime, you know, not to speak of the kind of human loss of life, but the, the destruction of the kind of whole architecture of what the Chilean state was, uh, is, is so clear uh, when you look at this history through the lens of food. So the price control system, for example, It becomes, you know, within the first couple of days of the Pinochet regime, first couple of weeks, uh, you know, the thing that is dismantled immediately. conservative economists come in uh, and they uh, are appalled by these lists of goods, you know, hundreds, perhaps even thousands of goods that the the state, the the popular unity government was uh, fixing prices for. uh, And this becomes a kind of symbol of everything that was supposedly irrational uh, about the uh, economic policy making of the government, of, of Allende's government, perhaps some truth in that, but it ignores completely uh, the fact that this really had been going on for decades, right? This wasn't anything particularly new to the Allende period. It had reached a, perhaps a certain extreme then, uh, but it, it was, you know, uh, decades in the making. I think that's just a, a sort of important observation. In the wake of these agencies being uh, dismantled, agencies that have been set up to protect consumers and uh, ensure uh, some sort of basic right to food or basic right to consumption, uh, is the demobilization of, of the power that social movements have. Um, thinking you know, forward, even past the dictatorship, thinking about contemporary Latin America today, I think one of the fascinating uh, Uh, distinctions or differences between, say, the mid-20th century and the 1980s forward is that uh, consumers, citizens in general, uh, lack the direct avenues to make these sorts of consumer demands on the state. Uh, I I talk a lot about, uh, throughout the book, the importance of what uh, U.S. historian Meg Jacobs refers to as state building from the bottom up. She talks about this during the New Deal, uh, and particularly with the Office of Price Administration, as uh, this uh, channel through which citizens could mobilize and get some sort of direct response from the state uh, around uh, basic consumer uh, concerns, right? The existence of the state Uh, foments or allows uh, social movements to have uh, very significant power in shaping state policies uh, throughout the middle of the 20th century. When these agencies disappear or become effectively toothless, uh, there isn't that avenue for uh, direct uh, uh, state response to consumer concerns. You know, I, I don't get into this in the book, but just sort of observationally what I see today, um, you know, obviously there are still food justice movements around the region, many of uh, of which are organized, uh, you know, by agricultural workers. I'm thinking, you know, the landless uh, workers movement in Brazil, the MST, uh, it's a larger kind of international coalition, Via Campesina, other parts of, of the global south. I think this is very much an issue that, is still at the the forefront of of progressive movements, I see less sort of uh, uh, organization or agitation at the sort of national level by those movements. I mean, there's a sort of transnational component to many of the debates about about food justice today, uh, thinking about stabilizing global food prices, the role that uh, uh, international financial institutions play in that. Uh, there's less, I think, of, a, of, of an orientation towards uh, reshaping national policies, uh, and I think a lot of that has to do with with the fact that there are uh, fewer kind of national state agencies that have uh, uh, food and the right to food as the, the kind of uh, objective or goal. Interestingly, today, Chile is uh, rewriting its constitution, getting rid of the constitution that was uh, created under the dictatorship of Augusto Pinochet. And there's some talk of uh, including in that document, a new right to a new basic right to, to food and nutrition. Uh, it'll be interesting to see if that actually does happen and how, uh, how that will actually be uh, sort of implemented in practice, new agencies will be set up to uh, kind of enforce that right or guarantee that right. Um, I think that's all kind of yet to be seen, but it, it is an exciting time. And, and uh, although I think some of the issues uh, in the book Uh, may seem from a different era, uh, certainly uh, questions of, you know, access to land, uh, access to uh, uh, guarantees really to a a sort of basic uh, uh, standard of living are certainly very much on the table around the region.
0: Yeah, well, thank you for uh, wrapping that up so nicely. Uh, And for, you know, as a historian doing that, that thing we we never like to do, which is talk sort of beyond into the future beyond our research and um, so I appreciate you uh, putting up with those questions um, and also thank you for uh, you know taking the the hour or so uh, to talk with us about your work uh, and especially for putting up with uh, some technical gremlins there at the beginning um, and uh, just to, to wrap up here uh, if you'd like to say a word or two about um, anything that you're working on uh, presently or we can expect to hear from you in the future uh, it's it's weird times, uh, but uh, is there anything on your plate these days?
1: Yeah, so uh, you know I have a few bits and pieces from this uh, of the book project, things that didn't make it in, or I want to expand upon a bit, uh, working on you know something right now on uh, inflation uh, and uh, you know different sort of intellectual and social understandings of that in the in the twentieth century, but thinking a lot about you know some of the debates that are contemporary today. And I'm uh, then moving uh, increasingly back in time uh, to really think about some of the issues in Chapter One. Uh, you know, the nitrate economy in Chile, uh, its role in uh, different forms of agricultural revitalization in the early 20th century, and, and particularly thinking about connections between Chile and the U.S. South uh, and the, the turn towards fertilizers uh, in the in the early years of the 20th century. So. Uh, a bit more on the sort of agricultural history side of things, but certainly tied uh, to issues of food and, uh, and uh, you know, Chile's kind of uh, broader role in the, uh, the uh, export economies of the early 20th century.
0: Well, that sounds fascinating, and uh, hopefully we'll get you back on the podcast for another book soon, um, and uh, in the meantime, I, I feel like I feel we've reached the, the point where it's okay for me to editorialize that uh, Pinochet has always been my least favorite Pino. Um, But anyway, uh, yes, you're welcome. Uh, I'll be here all week, as they say. Um, but we're not going to be here all week. I'm going to let you go. Uh, thanks for uh, spending some time with us. Thank
1: you so much, Nathan. I really appreciate it.